Welcome to Words of the Wise, an introduction to the book of Proverbs, by Dr. Jacques B. Ducan. Brought to you by the Ambassador Group. Exploration 3. A Matter of Life and Death. Ponder the path of your feet, and let all your ways be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Remove your foot from evil. Proverbs 4, verse 26 and 27, New King James Version. Science has demonstrated that hearing impacts how we walk, and that even our balance is influenced by how well we hear. So, instruction, or education, that is, what we hear, is crucial to how we live. Proverbs 4 verse 7 reveals that wisdom is the principal thing. Yet no matter how good the instruction is, the student must pay attention. Not without some irony, an ancient Egyptian teacher noted that the ear of the boy is on his back. He listens when he is beaten. In Egyptian art, the student was often represented with big ears on his back. It's not enough just to know about right and wrong. We need to know how to choose right and wrong. Training in wisdom consists in hearing proper instruction and in following and obeying what we have learned so that we don't end up walking in the wrong direction. Listen to Proverbs 4. As you listen, think of how we will answer these two questions. What practical truth do you discover? And how can you apply this truth to your own life as you seek to live in faithfulness to God? Proverbs 4. Hear, ye children, the instruction of a father, and attend to no understanding. For I give you good doctrine, forsake ye not my law. For I was my father's son, tender and only beloved in the sight of my mother. He taught me also, and said unto me, Let thine heart retain my words, keep my commandments, and live. Get wisdom, get understanding. Forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. Forsake her not, and she shall preserve thee. Love her, and she shall keep thee. Wisdom is a principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and with all thy getting, get understanding. Exalt her, and she shall promote thee. She shall bring thee to honor, when thou dost embrace her. She shall give to thine head an ornament of grace. A crown of glory shall she deliver to thee. Hear, O my son, and receive my sayings, and the years of thy life shall be many. I have taught thee in the way of wisdom. I have led thee in right paths. When thou goest, thy steps shall not be straightened, and when thou runnest, thou shalt not stumble. Take fast hold of instruction. Let her not go. Keep her, for she is thy life. Enter not into the path of the wicked, and go not in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Pass not by it. Turn from it, and pass away. For they sleep not, except they have done mischief, and their sleep is taken away, unless they cause some to fall. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the just is as the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. The way of the wicked is as darkness. They know not at what they stumble. My son, attend to my words. Incline thine ear unto my sayings. Let them not depart from thine eyes. Keep them in the midst of thine heart. For they are life unto those that find them, and health to all their flesh. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. 
Put away from thee a froward mouth, and perverse lips put far from thee. Let thine eyes look right on, and let thine eyelids look straight before thee. Ponder the path of thy feet, and let all thy ways be established. Turn not to the right hand nor to the left. Remove thy foot from evil. The act of hearing marks the first step in education. In Hebrew thought, the seat of wisdom or of intelligence is located not in the brain but in the ears. This implies that even before we seek to conceptualize or solve a problem, we first need to hear it. This means we need to listen. When Solomon asks for wisdom, he specifically asks for a hearing heart. That's the literal translation of First Kings three verse nine. The first act of wisdom then is to listen, which suggests that wisdom comes from an external source. In this case, the parents. We cannot discover wisdom by ourselves. The self-made individual is an impossible concept in the domain of biblical wisdom. Wisdom is first of all something that we receive, not something we shape with our own skills or that we unearth through our own brilliance and reasoning. The capacity of paying attention in the Hebrew to put one's heart implies the involvement of the heart. The search for wisdom then is not merely a cold, objective enterprise. The heart, which is the core of the individual and in Hebrew thought the seat of emotions, participates in the search for wisdom. Let's compare Matthew thirteen verse forty-four and Jeremiah twenty-nine verse thirteen. What link can you find between these verses and the search for wisdom as it is expressed in Proverbs four? Matthew thirteen verse forty-four tells us, "Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath and buyeth that field." And Jeremiah twenty-nine thirteen says, "And ye shall seek me and find me when ye search for me with all your heart." Emotions play a crucial role in our basic existence as humans, and thus cannot and should not be ignored in our relationship with God. Now, for a few moments of introspection, how do you learn the proper place and value of emotions in regard to your spiritual life? How have your emotions steered you right and wrong, and what have you learned from these experiences? Protect your family. Once we determine to walk in the way of wisdom, we still need great caution because we will meet obstacles along that way. For example. First Peter five verse eight instructs us to be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. One of the greatest dangers we face deals with our families, the most precious, sensitive, and intimate domain of life. Let's listen to Proverbs five. What dangers must we guard against? My son, attend unto my wisdom. And bow thine ear to my understanding, that thou mayest regard discretion, and that thy lips may keep knowledge. For the lips of a strange woman drop as an honeycomb, and her mouth is smoother than oil, but her end is bitter and wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword.
Her feet go down to death, her steps take hold on hell. Lest thou shouldest ponder the path of life, her ways are movable, that thou canst not know them. Hear me now, therefore, O ye children, and depart not from the words of my mouth. Remove thy way far from her, and come not nigh the door of her house, lest thou give thine honor unto others, and thy years unto the cruel. Lest strangers be filled with thy wealth, and thy labors be in the house of a stranger. And thou mourn at last, when thy flesh and thy body are consumed. And say, How have I hated instruction, and my heart despised reproof, and have not obeyed the voice of my teachers, nor inclined mine ears to them that instructed me. I was almost in all evil in the midst of the congregation and assembly. Drink waters out of thine own cistern, and running waters out of thine own well. Let thy fountains be dispersed abroad, and rivers of water in the streets. Let them be only thine own, and not strangers with thee. Let thy fountain be blessed, and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. Let her be as a loving hind and pleasant roe. Let her breast satisfy thee at all times, and be thou ravished always with her love. And why wilt thou, my son, be ravished with a strange woman, and embrace the bosom of a stranger? For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he pondereth all his goings. His own iniquities shall take the wicked himself, and he shall be holden with the cords of his sins. He shall die without instruction, and in the greatness of his folly he shall go astray. The first danger begins with ourselves. It lies in our own words. We should watch our tongues to make sure that what we say does not convey an inappropriate or a mixed message. Our lips should be in harmony with our knowledge and should reflect our spiritual views. The second danger comes from the other woman or the other man. Although the text refers to the danger coming from a strange woman, the language should be understood in a generic sense. Temptation could come from either a man or a woman who interferes in the family. Either could seduce a spouse into violating the marriage vows and who hasn't seen or experienced just how destructive this sin is. According to the text, the best way to resist these temptations, which often start with alluring words, is to listen to the words of wisdom. By heeding and obeying inspired instruction, we are more likely to stay focused on the essentials and so be protected from adultery or whatever other temptations come our way. Of course, not only should we keep ourselves from adultery, we should also avoid going to the place where the temptress stays. Proverbs 5 verse 10 we certainly should not approach her door. Proverbs 5, verse 8. Finally, perhaps the best protection of all against the temptation to love another woman or man is this, found in Proverbs 5, verse 18, New King James Version. Just love your own spouse, the wife or husband of your youth. The author of Ecclesiastes resonated with this counsel when he wrote in Ecclesiastes 9, verse 9, this translation comes from the New International Version. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. Be thankful for what you have, and you won't be looking elsewhere. Here is a promise, 1 Corinthians 10.13 There hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able but will with the temptation also make a way to escape 
that ye may be able to bear it. With this promise before you, what definitive and practical steps might you need to take right now in order to protect yourself from the passions that might be brewing in you? Protect your friendship. Someone once said, Lord, protect me from my friends. I can take care of my enemies. The book of Proverbs is concerned with the vulnerability of friendship. It counsels us on how to keep our friends and also, if necessary, how to protect ourselves from them. The Hebrew word for friend also means neighbor, the one who is close to us, the one who is already a friend or who may become one. Biblical wisdom values human relationships and appeals for thoughtfulness and respect in these relationships. What problem does Solomon refer to in Proverbs 6, verses 1-5, through 5, and what is the solution? What crucial spiritual principle do we find here as well? Proverbs 6, verses 1-5 through 5, warn. My son, if thou be surety for thy friend, if thou hast stricken thy hand with a stranger, thou art snared with the words of thy mouth, thou art taken with the words of thy mouth. Do this now, my son, and deliver thyself. When thou art come into the hand of thy friend, go, humble thyself, and make sure thy friend. Give not sleep to thine eyes, nor slumber to thine eyelids. Deliver thyself as a roe from the hand of the hunter, and as a bird from the hand of the fowler. While the Torah urges people to help the poor and to lend them money without charging interest, Exodus 22, verse 25, wisdom warns us against inconsiderate financial backing for a friend who is in debt. The duty of charity does not exclude the duty of justice. Exodus 23, 2 and 3 say, Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil, neither shalt thou speak in a cause to decline after many to rest judgment, neither shalt thou countenance or show partiality toward a poor man in his cause. Though we need to be generous when we can, we would be wise to make sure that our charity will not turn into a fiasco as Proverbs 22 verse 27 advises. Hence, the wise counsel given to us in the proverb. The first caution applies to our words. How crucial that we evaluate the situation and make sure that we can afford to help our friend. If so, only then speak and promise. Indeed, the warmth of our relationship or a moment of emotion may precipitate our commitment, and we may regret it afterward. No matter how well-intentioned you might have been, it's crucial to think before you act and commit to something that you can't fulfill. The point is that if we get into a bind, we need to do what we can to fix it, including humbling ourselves, admitting our mistake, and asking for grace. It can be challenging especially because we are often told that means helping financially the poor or less fortunate than we are, particularly when people refer to Galatians 6, verse 2, which says, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Actually, the Amplified Bible seems to indicate a spiritual need for help, 
not financial, when it says, Bear, endure, carry one another's burdens, and troublesome moral faults, and in this way fulfill and observe perfectly the law of Christ, the Messiah, and complete what is lacking in your obedience to it. Nevertheless, how do we learn to balance our desire to bear one another's burdens with the words given to us in this proverb found in Proverbs 6? Protect yourself. After having warned us against the particular evils that threaten three domains of life, our family, our social contacts, and our work, Proverbs gives us a portrayal of the wicked. It is a satire full of irony and sharp psychological observation. The two poems are found in Proverbs 6 verses 12 through 15 and verses 16 through 19. In the first poem, you will hear the word froward. Froward is an adjective and means willfully contrary, not easily managed. The first poem, Proverbs 6, verses 12 through 15, says, A naughty person, a wicked man, walketh with a froward mouth. He winketh with his eyes, he speaketh with his feet, he teacheth with his fingers. Frowardness is in his heart. He deviseth mischief continually, he soweth discord. Therefore shall his calamity come suddenly, suddenly shall he be broken without remedy. And the second poem, Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19, These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. They are parallel, and, with the same poetic rhythm of seven, cover corresponding motifs. The wicked person's inside is described as linked to what is thought in the heart. At the same time, it all becomes manifested in what is done on the outside. Listen for one important point made in these texts. Proverbs 6 verses 14 and 18 says, Frowardness is in his heart, he deviseth mischief continually, he soweth discord, and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief. Matthew 15 verse 19 provides a second clue that will help you decide what that source point is. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Ellen G. White, on page 334 of her book entitled The Adventist Home, wrote, If you indulge in vain imaginations, permitting your mind to dwell upon impure subjects, you are, in a degree, as guilty before God as if your thoughts were carried into action. Listen for the warnings that are given in Proverbs 6, verses 12 through 19. A naughty person, a wicked man, walketh with a froward mouth. He winketh with his eyes, he speaketh with his feet, he teacheth with his fingers. 
Frowardness is in his heart. He deviseth mischief continually. He soweth discord. Therefore shall his calamity come suddenly. Suddenly shall he be broken without remedy. These six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. An heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. What warnings are given? Sudden calamity and unfixable brokenness will happen to the haughty, wicked person who walks with a forward mouth and who deviseth mischief continually, and he sows discord wherever he goes. The imagery is ironic. The walking wicked follows the lazy sluggard. The two attitudes seem to be different, and yet they carry the same lesson. Both stay within themselves. Neither one is interested in the instruction coming from outside of themselves. They both follow their own wisdom and inclinations. The sluggards are sleeping, and neither their ears nor their feet function. The wicked have only their feet and their mouths working not their ears. The result is the same. They will both go to destruction. Meanwhile, evil has two effects. It harms not only persons sinned against, but sinners as well. The liars will finally believe their own lies. It is also noteworthy that the ultimate result of wickedness is discord and conflict, which can affect society as well. Indeed, the effects of sin rarely, if ever, remain confined to sinners. Others are impacted, and usually only for the worse. How have other people's sins affected your life? What lessons can you learn from this about how careful you need to be so that your actions don't hurt others? continue exploring. Now we come to our bonus resources study time, where we listen to writings of Ellen G. White. Our first reading is a chapter entitled Moral Standards, pages 326 to 339, in her book The Adventist Home. Satan Seeks to Pervert the Marriage Institution It was Satan's studied effort in the antediluvian age to pervert the marriage institution, to weaken its obligations and lessen its sacredness, for in no surer way could he deface the image of God in man and open the door to misery and vice. Satan well knows the material with which he has to deal in the human heart. He knows, for he has studied with fiendish intensity for thousands of years, the points most easily assailed in every character, and through successive generations he has wrought to overthrow the strongest men, princesses in Israel, by the same temptations that were so successful in Baal Peor. All along through the ages there are strewn wrecks of character that have been stranded upon the rocks of sensual indulgence. The crime that brought the judgments of God upon Israel was that of licentiousness. The forwardness of women to entrap souls did not end at Baal Peor. 
Notwithstanding the punishment that followed the sinners in Israel, the same crime was repeated many times. Satan was most active in seeking to make Israel's overthrow complete. The licentious practice of the Hebrews accomplished for them that which all the warfare of nations and the enchantments of Balaam could not do. They became separated from their God. Their covering and protection were removed from them. God turned to be their enemy. So many of the princesses and people were guilty of licentiousness that it became a national sin, for God was wroth with the whole congregation. The History to be Repeated Near the close of this earth's history, Satan will work with all his powers in the same manner and with the same temptations wherewith he tempted ancient Israel just before their entering the land of promise. He will lay snares for those who claim to keep the commandments of God and who are almost on the borders of the heavenly Canaan. He will use his powers to their utmost in order to entrap souls and to take God's professed people upon their weakest points. Those who have not brought the lower passions into subjection to the higher powers of their being, those who have allowed their minds to flow in a channel of carnal indulgence of the baser passions, Satan is determined to destroy with his temptations, to pollute their souls with licentiousness. He is not aiming especially at the lower and less important marks, but he makes use of his snares through those whom he can enlist in as his agents to allure or attract men to take liberties which are condemned in the law of God. And men in responsible positions, teaching the claims of God's law, whose mouths are filled with arguments in vindication of his law, against which Satan has made such a raid, over such he sets his hellish powers and his agencies at work and overthrows them upon the weak points in their character, knowing that he who offends on one point is guilty of all, thus obtaining complete mastery over the entire man. Mind, soul, body, and conscience are involved in the ruin. If he be a messenger of righteousness and has had great light, or if the Lord has used him as his special worker in the cause of truth, then how great is the triumph of Satan, how he exalts, how God is dishonored. Prevalence of Immorality Today a terrible picture of the condition of the world has been presented before me. Immorality abounds everywhere. Licentiousness is the special sin of this age. Never did vice lift its deformed head with such boldness as now. The people seem to be benumbed, and the lovers of virtue and true goodness are nearly discouraged by its boldness, strength, and prevalence. The iniquity which abounds is not merely confined to the unbeliever and the scoffer. Would that this were the case, but it is not. Many men and women who profess the religion of Christ are guilty. Even some who profess to be looking for his appearing are no more prepared for that event than Satan himself. They are not cleansing themselves from all pollution. They have so long served their lust that it is natural for their thoughts to be impure and their imaginations corrupt. It is as impossible to cause their minds to dwell upon pure and holy things as it would be to turn the course of Niagara and send its waters pouring up the falls. Every Christian will have to learn to restrain his passions and be controlled by principle. Unless he does this, he is unworthy of the Christian name. 
lovesick sentimentalism prevails. Married men receive attention from married or unmarried women. Women also appear to be charmed and lose reason and spiritual discernment and good common sense. They do the very things that the Word of God condemns, the very things that the testimonies of the Spirit of God condemn. Warnings and reproofs are before them in clear lines, yet they go over the same path that others have traveled before them. It is like an infatuating game at which they are playing. Satan leads them on to ruin themselves, to imperil the cause of God, to crucify the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. Ignorance, pleasure-loving, and sinful habits, corrupting soul, body, and spirit, make the world full of moral leprosy. A deadly moral malaria is destroying thousands and tens of thousands. What shall be done to save our youth? We can do little, but God lives and reigns, and He can do much. God's people to stand in contrast to the world. The liberties taken in this age of corruption should be no criterion for Christ's followers. These fashionable exhibitions of familiarity should not exist among Christians fitting for immortality. If lasciviousness, pollution, adultery, crime, and murder are the order of the day among those who know not the truth and who refuse to be controlled by the principles of God's word, how important that the class professing to be followers of Christ, closely allied to God and angels, should show them a better and nobler way. How important that by their chastity and virtue they stand in marked contrast to that class who are controlled by brute passions. Increasing Perils and Dangers in this degenerate age, many will be found who are so blinded to the sinfulness of sin that they choose a licentious life because it suits the natural and perverse inclination of the heart. Instead of facing the mirror of the law of God and bringing their hearts and characters up to God's standard, they allow Satan's agents to erect his standard in their hearts. Corrupt men think it easier to misinterpret the scriptures to sustain them in their iniquity than to yield up their corruption and sin and be pure in heart and life. There are more men of this stamp than many have imagined, and they will multiply as we draw near the end of time. When Satan's bewitching power controls a person, God is forgotten, and man who is filled with corrupt purposes is extolled. Secret licentiousness is practiced by these deceived souls as a virtue. This is a species of witchcraft. There is always a bewitching power in heresies and in licentiousness. The mind is so deluded that it cannot reason intelligently, and an illusion is continually leading it from purity. The spiritual eyesight becomes blurred, and persons of hitherto untainted morals— become confused under the delusive sophistry of those agents of Satan who profess to be messengers of light. It is this delusion which gives these agents power. Should they come out boldly and make their advances openly, they would be repulsed without a moment's hesitation. But they work first to gain sympathy and secure confidence in themselves as holy, self-sacrificing men of God. As his special messengers, they then begin their artful work of drawing away souls from the path of rectitude by attempting to make void the law of God. 
The mind of a man or woman does not come down in a moment from purity and holiness to depravity, corruption, and crime. It takes time to transform the human to the divine, or to degrade those formed in the image of God to the brutal or to the satanic. By beholding, we become changed. Though formed in the image of his Maker, man can so educate his mind that sin which he once loathed will become pleasant to him. As he ceases to watch and pray, he ceases to guard the citadel, the heart, and engages in sin and crime. The mind is debased, and it is impossible to elevate it from corruption while it is being educated to enslave the moral and intellectual powers and bring them in subjection to grosser passions. Constant war against the carnal mind must be maintained, and we must be aided by the refining influence of the grace of God, which will attract the mind upward and habituate it to meditate upon pure and holy things. There is no safety for any man, young or old, unless he feels the necessity of seeking God for counsel at every step. Those only who maintain close communion with God will learn to place His estimate upon men, to reverence the pure, the good, the humble, and the meek. The heart must be garrisoned as was that of Joseph. Then temptations to depart from integrity will be met with decision. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? The strongest temptation is no excuse for sin. No matter how severe the pressure brought to bear upon you, sin is your own act. The seat of the difficulty is the unrenewed heart. In view of the dangers of this time, shall not we, as God's commandment-keeping people, put away from among us all sin, all iniquity, all perverseness? Shall not the women professing the truth keep strict guard over themselves, lest the least encouragement be given to unwarrantable familiarity? They may close many a door of temptation if they will observe at all times strict reserve and propriety of deportment. I write with a distressed heart that the women in this age, both married and unmarried, too frequently do not maintain the reserve that is necessary. They act like coquettes. They encourage the attentions of single and married men, and those who are weak in moral power will be ensnared. These things, if allowed, deaden the moral senses and blind the mind so that crime does not appear sinful. Thoughts are awakened that would not have been if women had kept her place in all modesty and sobriety. She may have had no unlawful purpose or motive herself, but she has given encouragement to men who are tempted and who need all the help they can get from those associated with them. By being circumspect, reserved, taking no liberties, receiving no unwarrantable attentions, but preserving a high moral tone and becoming dignity, much evil might be avoided. I have long been designing to speak to my sisters and tell them that, for what the Lord has been pleased to show me from time to time, there is a great fault among them. They are not careful to abstain from all appearance of evil. They are not all circumspect in their deportment as becometh women professing godliness. Their words are not as select and well-chosen as those of women who have received the grace of God should be. They are too familiar with their brethren. They linger around them, incline toward them, and seem to choose their society. They are highly gratified with their attention. From the light which the Lord has given me, our sisters should pursue a very different course. 
they should be more reserved, manifest less boldness, and encourage in themselves shamefacedness and sobriety. Both brethren and sisters indulge in too much jovial talk when in each other's society. Women professing godliness indulge in much jesting, joking, and laughing. This is unbecoming and grieves the Spirit of God. These exhibitions reveal a lack of true Christian refinement. They do not strengthen the soul in God, but bring great darkness. They drive away the pure, refined, heavenly angels and bring those who engage in these wrongs down to a low level. Women are too often tempters. On one pretense or another they engage the attention of men, married or unmarried, and lead them on till they transgress the law of God, till their usefulness is ruined and their souls are in jeopardy. If women would only elevate their lives and become workers with Christ, there would be less danger through their influence. But with their present feelings of unconcern in regard to home responsibilities and in regard to the claims that God has upon them, their influence is often strong in the wrong direction, their powers are dwarfed, and their work does not bear the divine impress. There are so many forward misses and bold forward women who have a faculty of insinuating themselves into notice, putting themselves in the company of young men, courting the attentions, inviting flirtations from married or unmarried men, that unless your face is set Christward, firm as steel, you will be drawn into Satan's net. As Christ's ambassador, I entreat you who profess present truth to promptly resent any approach to impurity and forsake the society of those who breathe an impure suggestion. Loathe these defiling sins with the most intense hatred. Flee from those who would, even in conversation, let the mind run in such a channel, for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. You should not for one moment give place to an impure, covert suggestion, for even this will stain the soul as impure water defiles the channel through which it passes. A woman who will allow an unchaste word or hint to be uttered in her presence is not as God would have her. One that will permit any undue familiarity or impure suggestion does not preserve her godlike womanhood. Our sisters should encourage true meekness. They should not be forward, talkative, and bold, but modest and unassuming, slow to speak. They may cherish courteousness. To be kind, tender, pitiful, forgiving, and humble would be becoming and well-pleasing to God. If they occupy this position, they will not be burdened with undue attention from gentlemen in the church or out. All will feel that there is a sacred circle of purity around these God-fearing women which shields them from any unwarrantable liberties. With some women professing godliness, there is a careless, coarse freedom of manner which leads to wrong and evil. But those godly women whose minds and hearts are occupied in meditating upon themes which strengthen purity of life and which elevate the soul to commune with God will not be easily led astray from the path of rectitude and virtue. Such will be fortified against the sophistry of Satan. They will be prepared to withstand his seductive arts. I appeal to you as followers of Christ, making an exalted profession, to cherish the precious, priceless gem of modesty. This will guard virtue. You should control your thoughts. This will not be an easy task. 
You cannot accomplish it without close and even severe effort. Yet God requires this of you. It is a duty resting upon every accountable being. You are responsible to God for your thoughts. If you indulge in vain imaginations, permitting your mind to dwell upon impure subjects, you are, in a degree, as guilty before God as if your thoughts were carried into action. All that prevents the action is the lack of opportunity. Day and night dreaming and castle building are bad and exceedingly dangerous habits. When once established, it is next to impossible to break up such habits and direct the thoughts to pure, holy, elevated themes. I am pained when I see men praised, flattered, and petted. God has revealed to me the fact that some who receive these attentions are unworthy to take His name upon their lips, yet they are exalted to heaven in the estimation of finite beings who read only from outward appearance. My sisters, never pet and flatter poor, fallible, erring men, either young or old, married or unmarried. You know not their weaknesses. And you know not but that these very attentions and this profuse praise may prove their ruin. I am alarmed at the short-sightedness, the want of wisdom that many manifest in this respect. Men who are doing God's work and who have Christ abiding in their hearts will not lower the standard of morality, but will ever seek to elevate it. They will not find pleasure in the flattery of women or in being petted by them. Let men, both single and married, say, Hands off! I will never give the least occasion that my good should be evil spoken of. My good name is capital of far more value to me than gold or silver. Let me preserve it untarnished. If men assail that name, it shall not be because I have given them occasion to do so, but for the same reason that they spoke evil of Christ, because they hated the purity and holiness of His character, for it was a constant rebuke to them. The slightest insinuations, from whatever source they may come, inviting you to indulge in sin or to allow the least unwarrantable liberty with your persons, should be resented as the worst of insults to your dignified womanhood. The kiss upon your cheek, at an improper time and place, should lead you to repel the emissary of Satan with disgust. If it is from one in high places, who is dealing in sacred things, the sin is of tenfold greater magnitude and should lead a God-fearing woman or youth to recoil with horror, not only from the sin he would have you commit, but from the hypocrisy and villainy of one whom the people respect and honor as God's servant. If a minister of the gospel does not control his baser passions, if he fails to follow the example of the apostle and so dishonors his profession and faith as to even name the indulgence of sin, our sisters, who profess godliness, should not for an instant flatter themselves that sin or crime loses its sinfulness in the least because their minister dares to engage in it. The fact that men who are in responsible places show themselves to be familiar with sin should not lessen the guilt and enormity of the sin in the minds of any. Sin should appear just as sinful, just as abhorrent, as it had been heretofore regarded, and the minds of the pure and elevated should abhor and shun the one who indulges in sin as they would flee from a serpent whose sting was deadly. If the sisters were elevated and possessed purity of heart, any corrupt advances, even from their minister, would be repulsed with such positiveness as would never need a repetition. 
How careful should the husband and father be to maintain his loyalty to his marriage vows? How circumspect should be his character, lest he shall encourage thoughts in young girls, or even in married women, that are not in accordance with the high, holy standard, the commandments of God? Those commandments Christ shows to be exceedingly broad, reaching even the thoughts, intents, and purposes of the heart. Here is where many are delinquent. Their heart imaginings are not of the pure, holy character which God requires, and however high their calling, however talented they may be, God will mark iniquity against them and will count them as far more guilty and deserving of His wrath than those who have less talent, less light, less influence. To married men I am instructed to say, It is to your wives, the mothers of your children, that your respect and affection are due. Your attentions are to be given to them, and your thoughts are to dwell upon plans for their happiness. I have been shown families where the husband and father has not preserved that reserve, that dignified, godlike manhood which is befitting a follower of Christ. He has failed to perform the kind, tender, courteous acts due to his wife, whom he has promised before God and angels to love, respect, and honor while they both shall live. The girl this employed to do the work has been free and somewhat forward to dress his hair to and to be affectionately attentive, and he is and pleased, more. foolishly if you would like to know more pleased. In his love and attention to his wife, you would like to he is not as demonstrative sermons, as he once was. Be sure that Satan is at work here. Respect your hired help. Treat them kindly, considerately, but go no further. Let your deportment be such that there will be no advances to familiarity from them. Oh, how many lives are made bitter by the breaking down of the walls which enclose the privacies of every family and which are calculated to preserve its purity and sanctity. A third person is taken into the confidence of the wife, and her private family matters are laid open before the special friend. This is a device of Satan to estrange the hearts of the husband and wife. Oh, that this would cease! What a world of trouble would be saved! Lock within your own hearts the knowledge of each other's faults. Tell your troubles alone to God. He can give you right counsel and sure consolation which will be pure, having no bitterness in it. When a woman relates her family troubles or complains of her husband to another man, she violates her marriage vows. She dishonors her husband and breaks down the wall erected to preserve the sanctity of the marriage relation. She throws wide open the door and invites Satan to enter with his insidious temptations. This is just as Satan would have it. If a woman comes to a Christian brother with a tale of her woes, her disappointments, and trials, he should ever advise her, if she must confide her troubles to someone, to select sisters for her confidants, and then there will be no appearance of evil whereby the cause of God may suffer reproach. I speak to our people. If you draw close to Jesus and seek to adorn your profession by a well-ordered life and godly conversation, your feet will be kept from straying into forbidden paths. If you will only watch, continually watch unto prayer, if you will do everything as if you were in the immediate presence of God, you will be saved from yielding to temptation and may hope to be kept pure, spotless, and undefiled till the last. If you hold the beginning of your confidence firm unto the end, 
your ways will be established in God. And what grace has begun, glory will crown in the kingdom of our God. The fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. If Christ be within us, we shall crucify the flesh with their affections and lusts. Our second reading is a chapter entitled, In Contact with Others, pages 489 to 491, in the Ministry of Healing. If we have a sense of the long-suffering of God toward us, we shall not be found judging or accusing others. When Christ was living on the earth, how surprised his associates would have been if, after becoming acquainted with him, they had heard him speak one word of accusation, of fault-finding, or of impatience. Let us never forget that those who love him are to represent him in character. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called that ye should inherit a blessing. Romans 12 verse 10 the Lord Jesus demands our acknowledgments of the rights of every man. Men's social rights and their rights as Christians are to be taken into consideration. All are to be treated with refinement and delicacy as the sons and daughters of God. Christianity will make a man a gentleman. Christ was courteous, even to his persecutors, and his true followers will manifest the same spirit. Look at Paul when brought before rulers. His speech before Agrippa is an illustration of true courtesy as well as persuasive eloquence. The gospel does not encourage the formal politeness current with the world, but the courtesy that springs from real kindness of heart. The most careful cultivation of the outward proprieties of life is not sufficient to shut out all fretfulness, harsh judgment, and unbecoming speech. True refinement will never be revealed so long as self is considered as a supreme object. Love must dwell in the heart. A thoroughgoing Christian draws his motives of action from his deep heart love for his master. Up through the roots of his affection for Christ springs an unselfish interest in his brethren. Love imparts to its possessor grace, propriety and comeliness of deportment. It illuminates the countenance and subdues the voice. It refines and elevates the whole being. Life is chiefly made up not of great sacrifices and wonderful achievements, but of little things. It is oftenest through the little things which seem so unworthy of notice that great good or evil is brought into our lives. It is through our failure to endure the tests that come to us in little things that the habits are molded the character misshaped, and when the greater tests come, they find us unready. Only by acting upon principle in the tests of daily life can we acquire power to stand firm and faithful in the most dangerous and most difficult positions. We are never alone. Whether we choose Him or not, we have a companion. Remember that wherever you are, whatever you do, God is there. Nothing that is said or done or thought can escape his attention. To your every word or deed you have a witness, the holy, sin-hating God. Before you speak or act, always think of this. 
As a Christian, you are a member of a royal family, a child of the heavenly King. Say no word, do no act that shall bring dishonor upon that worthy name by the which ye are called. James 2, verse 7. Study carefully the divine human character and constantly inquire, What would Jesus do were he in my place? This should be the measurement of our duty. Do not place yourselves needlessly in the society of those who by their arts would weaken your purpose to do right or bring a stain upon your conscience. Do nothing among strangers, in the street, on the cars, in the home, that would have the least appearance of evil. Do something every day to improve, beautify, and ennoble the life that Christ has purchased with His own blood. Always act from principle, never from impulse. Temper the natural impetuosity of your nature with meekness and gentleness. Indulge in no lightness or trifling. Let no low witticism escape your lips. Even the thoughts are not to be allowed to run riot. They must be restrained, brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Let them be placed upon holy things. Then, through the grace of Christ, they will be pure and true. We need a constant sense of the ennobling power of pure thoughts. The only security for any soul is right thinking. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Proverbs 23, verse 7. The power of self-restraint strengthens by exercise. That which at first seems difficult by constant repetition grows easy until right thoughts and actions become habitual. If we will, we may turn away from all that is cheap and inferior and rise to a high standard. We may be respected by men and beloved of God. Our third reading is a chapter entitled Other Object Lessons, pages 117 to 120 in her book Education. Ask now the beasts, and they shall teach thee, and the fowls of the air, and they shall tell thee, and the fishes of the sea shall declare unto thee, Go to the ant, consider her ways. Behold the birds, consider the ravens. Job 12, verses 7 and 8, Proverbs 6, verse 6, Matthew 6, verse 26, and Luke 12, 24. We are not merely to tell the child about these creatures of God. The animals themselves are to be his teachers. The ants teach lessons of patient industry, of perseverance in surmounting obstacles, of providence for the future. And the birds are teachers of the sweet lesson of trust. Our Heavenly Father provides for them, but they must gather the food, they must build their nests and rear their young. Every moment they are exposed to enemies that seek to destroy them. Yet how cheerily they go about their work! How full of joy are their little songs! How beautiful the psalmist's description of God's care for the creatures of the woods! The high hills are a refuge for the wild goats, and the rocks for the conies. Psalms 104 verse 18 He sends the springs to run among the hills, where the birds have their habitation, and sing among the branches. Psalm 104, verse 12. All the creatures of the woods and hills are a part of his great household. He opens his hand and satisfies the desire of every living thing. Psalm 145, verse 16. The eagle of the Alps is sometimes beaten down by the tempest into the narrow defiles of the mountains. 
Storm clouds shut in this mighty bird of the forest, their dark masses separating her from the sunny heights where she has made her home. Her efforts to escape seem fruitless. She dashes to and fro, beating the air with her strong wings and waking the mountain echoes with her cries. At length, with a note of triumph, she darts upward and, piercing the clouds, is once more in the clear sunlight, with the darkness and tempest far beneath. So we may be surrounded with difficulties, discouragement and darkness. Falsehood, calamity, injustice shut us in. There are clouds that we cannot dispel. We battle with circumstances in vain. There is one, and but one, way of escape. The mists and fogs cling to the earth. Beyond the clouds, God's light is shining. Into the sunlight of His presence, we may rise on the wings of faith. Many are the lessons that may thus be learned. Self-reliance from the tree that, growing alone on plain or mountainside, strikes down its roots deep into the earth, and in its rugged strength defies the tempest. The power of early influence, from the gnarled shapeless trunk, bent as a sapling, to which no earthly power can afterward restore its lost symmetry. The secret of a holy life, from the water lily, that, on the bosom of some slimy pool, surrounded by weeds and rubbish, strikes down its channeled stem to the pure sands beneath, and, drawing thence its life, lifts up its fragrant blossoms to the light in spotless purity. Thus, while the children and youth gain a knowledge of facts from teachers and textbooks, let them learn to draw lessons and discern truth for themselves. In their gardening, question them as to what they learn from the care of their plants. As they look on a beautiful landscape, ask them why God clothed the fields and woods with such lovely and varied hues. Why was not all colored a somber brown? When they gather the flowers, lead them to think why he spared us the beauty of these wonders from Eden. Teach them to notice the evidences everywhere manifest in nature of God's thought for us, the wonderful adaptation of all things to our need and happiness. He alone who recognizes in nature his Father's handiwork, who in the richness and beauty of the earth reads the Father's handwriting, he alone learns from the things of nature their deepest lessons and receives their highest ministry. Only he can fully appreciate the significance of hill and vale, river and sea, who looks upon them as an expression of the thought of God, a revelation of the Creator. Many illustrations from nature are used by the Bible writers, and as we observe the things of the natural world, we shall be enabled, under the guiding of the Holy Spirit, more fully to understand the lessons of God's Word. It is thus that nature becomes a key to the treasure house of the Word. Children should be encouraged to search out in nature the objects that illustrate Bible teachings and to trace in the Bible the similitudes drawn from nature. They should search out, both in nature and in Holy Writ, every object representing Christ and those also that He employed in illustrating truth. Thus may they learn to see Him in tree and vine, in lily and rose, in sun and star. They may learn to hear His voice in the song of birds, in the sighing of the trees, in the rolling thunder, and in the music of the sea. And every object in nature will repeat to them His precious lessons. To those who thus acquaint themselves with Christ, the earth will never more be a lonely and desolate place. It will be their Father's house 
filled with the presence of Him who once dwelt among men. In summary, here are two thoughts from the book Education, page 189. The student of the Bible should be taught to approach it in the spirit of a learner. We are to search its pages, not for proof to sustain our opinions, but in order to know what God says. One of the chief causes of mental inefficiency and moral weakness is the lack of concentration. With the immense tide of printed matter constantly pouring from the press, old and young form the habit of reading hastily and superficially, and the mind loses its power of connected and vigorous thought. And lastly, Counsels to Parents, Teachers, and Students, page 190. The habitations that the ants build for themselves show skill and perseverance. Only one little grain at a time can they handle, but by diligence and perseverance they accomplish wonders. Solomon points to the industry of the ant as a reproach to those who waste their hours in idleness or in practices that corrupt soul and body. The ant prepares for future seasons, but many gifted with reasoning powers fail to prepare for the future immortal life. Here are a couple of questions to think about and possibly discuss with your friends or small Bible study group. Do you ever think about how you can help others, even though it might cost you something? How do you look at what this exploration taught in contrast to John 15 verse 13, which says, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Let's listen again to Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19, describe the seven abominations. Here's the question to keep in mind. Why do you think that these seven abominations are considered so bad in God's eyes? These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. Why do you think that they are considered so bad in God's eyes? Let's pray. Lord, now that I've considered what you like and don't like, when I make my choices, please help me to be sensitive to your instructions that I've discovered. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. AmbassadorGroup.org This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.